This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. The scripture reading for today is John 4, 1 through 26. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up in eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me. A time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. This is God's word. In the fall of 2017, we uh, started a journey through the Bible in Genesis, and um, 
We've been saying that everybody who comes to the doors on a Sunday morning from the age of two on up is in the same story, the same passage each week. They're looking at this in the kids' area. They're looking at this with the junior high, senior high students. And so we are taking what could be about a four-year trip through uh, the forest. If the scriptures are a forest, uh, we are taking a walk through. We're not staring at every tree along the way. Um, But we'll have a good idea of what this forest looks like by the time we're done. Our vision at Alliance Bible Church is captivating generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. That's our vision. The idea of satisfaction or contentment is replete throughout uh, Scripture. And it comes at us through numerous metaphors, numerous analogies. For example, right away in Genesis 1, after God finishes creating the cosmos, he rests on the seventh day, not because he was tired. Rest in that context is is God taking a step back, looking at everything he's made, and saying, yes, everything is as it should be. There was a state of existential settledness. Everything as it should be-ness. And we're invited into this rest on countless occasions. The one that's most familiar to most of us is Jesus' words in Matthew's gospel. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He's not talking about offering you a nap, parents of small children. He's talking about offering a state of existential settledness, of being able to take a step back like he did on the seventh day and saying, yes, yes. And this rest um, soars above the immediate circumstances of our lives. This state of okayness, this state of existential settledness, of everything as it should be-ness. There is a sense in which Jesus offers that now. Now, rest may be the most common metaphor to get across the idea of satisfaction and contentment, but there are others. And one of those we're going to look at today in the verses in front of us. Jesus uses the metaphors of thirst and water to show us the gospel is satisfying. So I'm gonna take a walk through these verses, mention a few things, and then we're gonna conclude with three reflections. Starting in verse four, now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon when a Samaritan woman came to draw water. When reading the scriptures, pay attention to repetition. Now Jesus had to go through Samaria. He came to a town in Samaria when a Samaritan woman came to draw water. You got it? The gospel writers making sure we're not missing the mention of Samaria. Who were the Samaritans and what significance does that have to this conversation? Well, The northern kingdom of Israel was invaded and conquered by the Assyrians approximately 700 years before Jesus' conversation with this woman. The, The Assyrians had hauled most of the Israelite people off to captivity in Assyria, but there would have been some Israelites who were left behind 
as a number of Assyrians would have moved in. The tactic here is to prevent Israel from repopulating the land. So the Assyrians would have mixed with the people of Israel, essentially breeding them out of existence. Samaritans were the group of people who resulted from this. Now the southern kingdom of Israel, which wouldn't be conquered for another 150 years, viewed this as a compromise. They viewed this as a compromise. So over the years, the Jewish people and the Samaritans developed an intense disdain and even hatred for one another. Samaritans were a biracial people. Their religion was different. Their culture was different. For generations, animosity was prevalent. Jesus, in engaging this Samaritan woman in conversation, is crossing religious lines. He's crossing cultural lines. He's crossing ethnic lines in order to engage this woman in conversation. The mention of the time, noon, the fact that she's alone are significant. All the ancient extra-biblical texts that we have indicates that it was common practice for women to travel in a group to draw water and to do so in the morning hours when it was cooler. The Samaritan woman is alone and she's coming in the heat of the day. And as we're about to read in the next few verses, we'll discover why. She's a moral outcast. So the average church attender of that day would have been looking at this thinking, what in the world is Jesus doing talking with this woman? It's so totally inappropriate for him to be doing this. He's dispensing with so many cultural mores, it's astonishing. It's a reminder to us about the mission of the church. It's a reminder to us about who we're here to reach. Let's keep reading. Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now in verse seven, Jesus is asking for a drink of H2O. But in these verses, he pivots the conversation. His reference to living water is not some supercharged reverse osmosis H2O. Throughout John's gospel, food and drink are referred to frequently as metaphors and analogies for spiritual matters. And this reference to living water is no different. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 11, sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So Jesus here defines at least the first part of what he means by living water, eternal life. Now just notice for a moment that the source of living water is just one, Jesus. Jesus is the one who possesses living water. He's the one who gives living water. It can't be found anywhere else. In other words, eternal life can't be found through or in anybody or anything else. Verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. So Jesus, Jesus left the conversation about H2O a few verses ago. 
Okay, for the past couple of verses, he's, he's pivoted the conversation. He's not talking about H2O. He's talking about a different kind of water. But the Samaritan woman is still on the topic of the supercharged reverse osmosis water. Now, just a quick practical observation here. This is an evangelistic conversation. It's an evangelistic conversation Jesus is having with her. Jesus does evangelism exceedingly well. Okay? He's the ultimate evangelist. Nobody has ever done it better. And still... The woman isn't understanding or following what Jesus is saying at this juncture in the conversation. The problem lies not in Jesus' ability to explain, but in the woman's ability to understand. That's an encouragement to you evangelists out there. It's possible to explain something flawlessly and for the person you're talking with not to be tracking with you. Now, there are numerous reasons Jesus' conversation with with Nicodemus in the previous chapter and his conversation with the woman in this chapter are juxtaposed in the text. They're lined up side by side. You'll recall that when we looked at Jesus' discussion uh, on the new birth with Nicodemus, one of the things the new birth does is it causes you to see things you didn't see before. It causes you to understand things you've heard in the past but didn't make sense. Many people don't understand the gospel or living water, not because the gospel's absent or the explanation isn't clear, but because they don't have eyes to see or ears to hear. The new birth causes people to see for the first time. So far, this is what's missing in the woman's life. And it's the reason she's not following Jesus' discussion about living water. Verse 16, he told her, go call your husband and come back. What's happening now? Uh, (laughs) What's Jesus doing? Is he thinking, oh, my sweet darling, you're not following me, so let's talk about something else. No. No, he's not. Jesus is again demonstrating what a brilliant conversationalist he is. He's pivoting the conversation a second time. He started with literal water, pivoted to living water. Now he's pivoting from living water to this deal with her husband. Okay? Brilliant conversationalist. The topic is still the same. The topic is still about living water. Just because she's not following the whole living water conversation doesn't mean he throws in the towel. Here's what he's doing. He's actually giving her another handle to hold on to as he tries to get her to grasp what he's talking about. So he pivots the conversation. Okay, you're not understanding the water stuff, so I'm gonna talk about a related topic that will help you get there. Go call your husband and come back. Verse 17, I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. She's been married five times and she's now intimate with a man she's not married to. Now what is Jesus doing? Conversation is still about water. It's still about thirst. But here Jesus is giving a second facet to living water the water that he offers. The first time around, Jesus links living water with eternal life. But here he builds on thirst and water and he's getting her to see she's thirsty. Her romantic relationships demonstrate she's been drinking lots of metaphorical water but she's still thirsty. Now there's something else to notice here. Jesus is connecting her physical thirst with spiritual thirst. He's connecting her physical sin problems with spiritual problems, which is very interesting because 
what we walk away with, and actually what the Apostle Paul especially builds on, is that behind all physical sins are spiritual forces. Behind all flesh and blood sins are spiritual forces. And the way in which Jesus guides the conversation shows us that the solution to the physical sin, the flesh and blood sin, starts spiritually. Just as a side note, men, I'm gonna be talking about that topic at my breakout session next week at No Regrets. Flesh and blood evil and spiritual forces. We're gonna look at spiritual warfare. Verse 19, sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Okay, so Jesus brought up some sensitive information about her past. (laughs) Is she trying to change the subject to avoid having to talk about that embarrassing aspect to her life? I don't think that's what's happening here because there's no indication in the text itself that suggests that's her motivation. To do that would be a bit anachronistic. That is, just because that's how we would handle it in 21st century America doesn't mean that's how this woman would handle it in the first century ancient Near East. There's a more natural reading. The more natural reading is to say that her, her words in verses 19 and 20 are a response to Jesus bringing up her sexual past. So to respond to the thirst-related topic Jesus brought up, her sexual past, she responds by talking about the mechanics of religious practice. Oh, you know about that part of my life. Well, what should I do? Why don't we talk about this as a way to address it? The mechanics of external religious practice. Verse 21, woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. So Jesus being the brilliant conversationalist that he is, never returns to the topic of her sexual past. But he's not been knocked off topic. (laughs) He's still talking about the issue of thirst in living water. And to do that, he pivots again on her related topic of religious practice. So she's brought up the mechanics of external religious observance, and in a sense, Jesus says, oh, You want to talk about worship. Wonderful, because that's precisely the issue here. Your spiritual thirst, which is fueling your addiction to romance, is ultimately a worship problem. And he goes on to address that. So here's what I want to do. Um, I want to look at three observations that this text makes about spiritual thirst. Okay, here they are. Here's what we'll look at. What it is, how not to quench it, and how to quench it. What it is, what spiritual thirst is, how not to quench it, and how to quench it. Now the experience of thirst, the metaphor of thirst, tells you everything you really need to know about it. Have you ever truly been thirsty? In the Western world, we don't typically experience this a whole lot. Uh, The closest thing I ever experienced to it was playing hoops in high school. Um, I I wouldn't drink during, I wouldn't drink water during, uh, basketball practice because all my teammates were over in the corner puking 
because we were run so hard. So I said, you know what? I'll wait. I'll just wait. So practice comes, you run hard, and uh, it's over two and a half hours later, and uh, you go drink, and wow. I mean, that's the closest thing I've experienced to thirst. Thirst though, is, isn't really an acutely painful experience like breaking a bone or spraining a joint. But thirst can, for a long time, exist underneath the surface of your routines, gnawing at you, wearing at you. You can live with it for a while without doing anything about it, but eventually you come to a breaking point and you spring into action. And there's nothing like an ice cold glass of water when you're truly thirsty. Nothing tastes better. It tastes best when you're most thirsty. Spiritual thirst is the sense lying underneath the surface of your routines that things are not the way they're supposed to be. Things are not the way you would like them to be. When your mouth feels like you've got a dozen cotton balls stuffed in it, you know that's not the way it's supposed to be. And all of life gives us this sense sometimes. You can take a look at the news headlines and you can take a step back and say things are not the way they're supposed to be. You can look at which, the, the way in which nature behaves and you think this is not the way it's supposed to be. Our personal lives, we feel this. Physical trials, emotional trials, relational trials. At some point during the course of a day, we, can ste- we step back and we say things are not the way they're supposed to be. That is thirst. That's thirst. It's the very nature of thirst. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. And every one of us, without exception, is spiritually thirsty. Every one of us. I don't care what what background you come from. I don't care what your story is. Every one of us is thirsty. We long to experience a deep sense of contentment and satisfaction. We, We long to really know that everything is good, that everything is the way it's supposed to be. This is spiritual thirst. And this is what Jesus is trying to get this woman to see. This is what Jesus is trying to get us to see. You're thirsty, he's saying. So how ought we not to quench this? How ought we not to quench this? Now, when the conversation shifts from water to husbands, we're given a glimpse into the typical ways we try to quench our thirst. How does she try to quench her thirst? Through intimate, romantic relationships with men. This is an example of how people have been trying to satisfy their thirst almost since the beginning of time. If only I had a romantic partner, then my life would have meaning. And the paradigm for this kind of thing was established in the Garden of Eden when this conversation ensued between the serpent and Eve. Hey, Eve, why aren't you eating from that tree over there? Oh, well, God said we're not supposed to. He said we could eat from any tree, but we're not supposed to eat from that one because a lot of bad stuff's gonna happen if we do. Now, Eve, you know that's not true. You know, by limiting your options, do you really think God is looking out for you? Do you really think he's got your best in mind? You know what I think, Eve? I think that if you eat from that tree, you'll become so much more than you are now. You'll become even better than you are now. So the seed of discontent is planted in Eve's mind. She looks at that tree over there and she thinks, boy, if only I had that. If only I had that, then my life would have meaning. Then I could be content. Then I'd be satisfied. And this is something we, re- we relive every day in our lives. This is what the woman is going through. If only I had a romantic relationship with a man, then I could be content. 
We look out there, over there, up there, and we say, if only I had that, you name it, you put something in the blank, then I could be content. Then I would know I'm valued. Then I would know my life is the way I want it to be. So maybe like the Samaritan woman for you, in the midst of your discontentment, it's your pursuit of intimate relationships, romantic relationships. So look at your life for a minute. How many relationships have you burned through trying to satisfy your thirst? Maybe in the midst of your dissatisfaction, it's the pursuit of career. If only I got to this place in my career, then I could be content. You're thirsty and you're trying to quench your thirst, but you're doing it in the wrong way. Maybe it's human approval. Think to yourself, if, if, if only these people in my life would like me, if only I could receive enough compliments, respect, or attention, then I would know my life has meaning. I want to give you an element, an eloquent contemporary expression of what Jesus is saying. Nobody put this better uh, than the American writer David Foster Wallace. Nobody put this better than he did. Uh, he got to the top of his profession. He uh, was an award-winning uh, best-selling postmodern novelist. He's, he was known around the world for his boundary-pushing storytelling. He once, wrote, he once wrote a single sentence that was more than a thousand words long. Yeah. You know you've gotten somewhere when you can pull that off. A few years before the end of his life, he gave a now famous commencement speech at Kenyon College. And this is an, a, a lengthy quote, but it's worth quoting. This is what he told the graduating class. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship is pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are what you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before your loved ones finally plant you. Worship power and you will end up feeling weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they are evil or sinful, it is that they're unconscious, they are default settings. What is so striking about this, Wallace was not a religious person at all. But he understood that everyone worships. Everyone worships. Everyone trusts in something for their salvation. Everyone bases their lives on something that requires faith. A couple of years after giving that speech, Wallace killed himself. And this non-religious man's parting words to us are haunting. He said, something will eat you alive. 
This is what happened with Adam and Eve. They got the very thing they thought they needed to become what they wanted to be. But in the end, realized it only made them much worse than they were before. The majority of options out there we think will give us peace and rest end up making us thirstier than we were before. And they might even be good things. But we're asking them to play a role they were never intended to play. If you think that a deep sense of contentment can be found apart from Christ, you know what that's like? Instead of drinking an ice cold glass of water on a hot, humid day, it's like pouring salt down your throat. Not only does it not quench your thirst, it makes you worse than you were before. So, how do we quench it? How do you quench it? You have a thirst to have a deep sense of peace and rest and contentment. We go to great lengths to try to get that. But we end up disappointed. So how do you truly find that sense of okayness? As I mentioned earlier, I don't think she's trying to change the subject. I think she's continuing with the topic at hand. Instead of addressing her thirst issues through romantic relationships, she turns to the mechanics of external religious practice. In other words, she's saying, I know men aren't the answer, so maybe, Jesus, you could help me sort out my religious practice as the route to take. I need to get back to church, and I need to know how to do that rightly. I need some moral structure, some church structure in my life. Jesus says, (laughs) right topic, wrong approach. He essentially says to her, your attempts to satisfy your thirst with men are worship issues, Our thirst issues are worship issues. Listen, your if-onlys are worship issues. Your if-onlys are worship issues. If only so-and-so would win the election, then I could have peace of mind. It's a worship issue. If only I could land that promotion at work, then I would feel validated. That's a worship issue. If only these circumstances in my life would change, then I could be content. It's a worship issue. Now notice something about these examples and the Samaritan woman's tactic. This is the crux of the whole conversation. Notice something about them. They all work outside in. They all work outside in. The Samaritan woman is trying to figure out the physical temple and location of worship the external mechanics of religious practice. It's an outside-in approach to satisfying her thirst. The victory of your favorite political candidate is an outside-in attempt to satisfy thirst. Landing a promotion at work is an outside-in attempt to satisfy thirst. An external change of circumstances is an outside-in attempt to satisfy thirst. Jesus says he's living water. Water satisfies thirst inside out. If you're dying of thirst, going for a swim is not going to help you. It has to get inside you before it can do anything to satisfy your thirst. Jesus has to get inside you before your thirst can be quenched. How does he do that? Verse 23. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. 
Jesus' reference to the word time is literally the word hour. As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, in John's gospel, the word hour is always a reference to the death of Christ. Jesus is saying, thirst-satisfying worship happens as a result of my death. My death makes it possible for me to get inside you through the Spirit. My death makes it possible for your body to become my dwelling place, which is the place of ultimate rest. Unless you're worshiping me, unless I'm the center of your life, unless you're trying to get your spiritual thirst quenched through me and not through these other things, unless you see that the solution must come from inside rather than just pass outside, then whatever you worship will abandon you in the end. I need to get inside you. In 2005, Brittany Ruiz became an adult film actress. She was beautiful, insecure, abused, unloved. Perfect credentials for someone in that line of work. She started at 18 years of age. She hit the ground running in search of the love she had lacked her entire life. She worked as many as 60 consecutive days starring in more than 275 films over seven years, winning a number of awards and receiving a mountain of accolades. Producers coveted her, men worshiped her. She was not only loved, she had fans. Life was good, right? No. Like most stars in that industry, Ruiz became depressed. In her words, she turned into, quote, an emotionless rubber Barbie doll, end quote. To cope with it, she self-medicated with alcohol, cocaine, heroin. She cut her wrists. She tried suicide multiple times. She wanted out of the film world, but like many in the industry, had no idea how to leave. Until November 2012, In the midst of an emotional breakdown, Ruiz met some members from Triple X Church at a convention in New Jersey. And the church pleaded with her to choose Jesus over her film career. The penny dropped. Her heart melted. She spit out the salt water of human love and found divine love in Jesus. For the first time in her life, she said, I'm free. In an interview with a British newspaper, she stated, quote, I never found love in my life and was looking for it in all the wrong places. Do you hear it? If only, if only, if only. I was looking for it in all the wrong places. She said, I finally found the unconditional love of God and I will never go back. Living water was Ruiz's only hope for freedom from the industry that held her captive. And in it she found healing 
She found love. She found a home. Will you find that today? Let's pray. I wonder how this has hit home for you. Are you aware of the spiritual thirst that hides underneath the surface of our daily routines? Are you aware of how that spiritual thirst fuels our external if-onlys? I wonder how you would finish the sentence, if only, then I would be content. If only, then I would be satisfied. If anything but Jesus is in that sentence, your thirst will go unquenched. So let's take some time now. Examine the thirst that lies underneath the surface of your daily and weekly routines. Look at your life. Identify the places where you're saying, if only I had that, then I could be content. Identify it. Jesus is asking you to leave that behind and come to him. the source of living water. And maybe that's something you need to do today. Jesus, show us the myriad of ways in which we attempt to satisfy our thirst outside in. We look outside us for solutions. We indulge, but find ourselves still thirsty. You put the invitation out there for us. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus, show us what you've done 
to become the epicenter of our existence. Help us, Jesus, to make you the center of our lives. We ask for your glory and our good. Amen.